Hello, and welcome to Perimedicast. Hello, and thank you for listening to this episode of Perimedicast. Today, we are joined by Gordon Ingram. Gordon is a critical care paramedic who grew up in Tynemouth, near Newcastle, and now after living in many places around the world, he has returned to his childhood village. He's a paramedic for Great North Air Ambulance and head of Operations East for the charity. He's a regional advisory group chair for the Faculty of Pre-Hospital Care, which is an arm of the Royal College of Surgeons Edinburgh. He's a remote area paramedic and RNLI volunteer lifeboat crew member. In this episode, we will discuss Gordon's varied career journey from a lifeguard and surfer to a critical care paramedic working within HEMS. We will explore Gordon's role within the faculty of pre-hospital care and the opportunities available. We will get an insight into Gordon's previous unique role as a remote area paramedic working in rural and hostile countries across the world and discuss Gordon's current role as an RNLI volunteer lifeboat crew member. Gordon, it's great to have you on the podcast. Thanks very much for inviting me, Sophie. It's great to be here. So, Gordon, you began your career as a lifeguard and surfer in the North East and then moved down to Cornwall and went on to become a lifeguard and surfing instructor in Australia. So what was it about being a lifeguard that sparked your interest to go into the role of a paramedic? I kind of started surfing when I was 14 um, in the North East in Tynemouth and and I wanted to get have a career that's that kind of was outside and all the lifeguards on the beaches back then. This was in the council days before the RNLI ran the beaches, and um, it all it looked great. So I became a lifeguard in Tynemouth, and then used to surf, kind of sponsored for surfing and things, and um, used to go out to Cornwall quite often for competitions, and moved out to Cornwall when I was eighteen, I think, and basically went down and apply for a job as a as a surfing instructor for uh, a surf school at Harlin, which is near Padstow. And I remember vividly um, meeting the owner, who's a very good friend of mine and a godfather to one of my sons called Chris Ray. And I was doing my lifeguard assessment because the lifeguard assessments were different down there than up in the Northeast. And he met me on the morning of my exam and said, look, if you pass this, then great. Um, you've got a job with us for the summer. If you don't, then you're off back to the Northeast. So a lot of pressure was on me, but managed to pass and um, taught surfing for him and ran the surf school for a number of years. And then used to do Cornwall in the summer and then Australia in the winters. And out in Australia, I was teaching surfing and lifeguarding out there. And then while I was in Cornwall, I started running lifeguard courses for a company called Saltwater Training, which then became Water Skills Academy in later years. And teaching the lifeguards down there and teaching the RNLI lifeguards and anybody who wanted to be a lifeguard, we were very busy. Um, but I remember coming back one year and thinking, I need a I need a proper career. I need something that's gonna see me long term till I till I get older. And um, I can't believe I'm old how old I am now, but kind of till I get older and like have a profession. And the natural kind of progression from lifeguarding in my head was paramedicine. Um, so I remember coming back from Australia one year and thinking, right, I need to do something about this. So I pretty much applied to every ambulance service in the country. And the first one that came up was Northeast Ambulance Service. So I got the a plane from Cornwall to Newcastle and um, did the assessment. I actually, actually failed the assessment. Um, or did I fail the interview? I'm not sure which one, but I didn't get into Northeast. 
but um which is a bit ironic because now I work in the area on hems which which is quite fun um but um I did get into Bournemouth um so Dorset Ambulance Service back in the day before it became Southwestern Ambulance Service so joined Dor Dorset Ambulance Service and was based at originally Christchurch Station and then Bournemouth Station and it was fantastic you know it, it was the career I'd always looked for and I was so fortunate to to get in there because you know when I became a paramedic or I started as a ambulance technician because it was long before the days of degrees and you did like your your one year as a trainee technician and then you had to be a technician for a, a full technician for a year and then you could go on to do your paramedic course there were two really influential people in my life who were heading up the training down there at, at Dorset and that was David Halliwell and Rob Clark and yeah, I think they really shaped my career. Um, I was thinking about this when you asked me to do this podcast and I was looking back and thinking of all those paramedics that were at Bournemouth and Dorset and there's some really highly skilled individuals that have come out of those stations. Um, and I was trying to work out in my head why. And for me personally, it was it was the influence of Dave and Rob and, and the other trainers down there because they had such a, a focus on trauma especially because that really interested me and and that kind of led me down the path that, that I've taken so yeah it was a natural progression from lifeguard into paramedicine and I've seen a lot of lifeguards do the same thing um you know they they really enjoy the that little rush of adrenaline when something happens and you know it became that kind of natural thing to do so so that's kind of how that happened you mentioned that trauma really interested you there what specifically was it about trauma because it's an alphabet and even I can work that out and squiggly lines <laughs> I don't have a chance with. Uh, no, I think if we all cut to the chase, why do we all become paramedics? Uh, why all do we, why do we want, do we all want to become paramedics? I think you, you want that high end level of, of case to deal with. And for me personally, I think everyone has their own interests. You know, I've got some great colleagues who are urgent care paramedics you know a acps in hospitals etc but it was really the the trauma that brought it home to me it was kind of like this this is a bit of me and i kind of really really enjoy dealing with those people that you know, are on a bit of a knife's edge and are, and are kind of on that precipice of, of going one way or the other and kind of making making a big difference in a short amount of time that we have you know so it kind of really focused my 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 learnings towards that I mean obviously that that changed I, I did a couple of other things which we'll talk about later but um which made me need to be a little bit better at the urgent care kind of things but trauma was really my my main interest and still is and as a lifeguard, you must have had some, you know, interesting exposure to, to varied sort of casualties and lots of different things. So just to give us a little bit more information about the medical side within the lifeguarding, what kind of things did you have to sort of train yourself in on, and what kind of things did you see? The lifeguard training back then, was it was quite in depth. And I remember somebody um, coming on one of our lifeguard courses and we were teaching, you know, asthma, anaphylaxis, epilepsy, diabetes, you know, uh, ACS, etc. And... And he actually said when when he was going through the manual, gosh, this is like, this isn't far off the ambulance training, you know. So so that kind of made me think, yeah, this is, this is still quite a high level. And it still is to this day, you know, the RNLI have their casualty care course, which is phenomenal. Um, when I was lifeguarding, you know, we used to deal with a lot of different things. It was obviously the trauma aspect of it. But, you know, there was, I remember cases where people would be having seizures on the beaches and it, it creates a complete different aspect to that role because 
you you have a level of training but there's a as with all of us there's only so much we can do before we have to, have to ask for help and it's realizing you know i think all of us need to know when we have to ask for help no matter what level you're at you know there's nobody that should be afraid to ask for help when they're dealing with a casualty if they're getting to the to the extended level of their skill set and their knowledge you know i remember spinal injuries in australia that we have to deal with and you know when i when i was lifeguarding in australia i was lifeguarding in western australia in a place called yelling up which is near margaret river and a case that sticks out in my mind is a it was actually after hours and we'd finished we'd packed up the beach we'd gone back to the where we we're staying to our accommodation and somebody came running up to because everyone kind of knew where we lived and said oh there's a girl who's injured on the beach and she jumped off a rock thinking it was really deep and got a spinal injury so we're kind of having to deal with this out of hours with minimal kit and you know tides coming in and trying to work out what to do and well, do we move it do we not all these things that you know i was only 19 at the time and you, you're dealing with these kind of high cases and and things like that but you end up kind of adapting and overcoming quite a lot i remember on that case you know a lot of the locals came down to help and everyone was digging a trench around this girl so the tide could fill the trench so it wasn't we didn't have to move her until the ambulance got there etc so it was just thinking about those little things that that we can that we can do to help th- help people yeah it's definitely a different job over in australia than it is in the uk i think the beaches are busier in the UK or some beaches are busier in the UK, especially around Cornwall than where I was in Western Australia. But the level of incident is often quite high over there. I did used to life got at Manly Beach in Sydney as well, which was ridiculously busy and constantly pulling tourists out of rip currents, etc. for the day, sat on a rescue board, which is great fun. Gosh, it sounds really interesting. And this must have really set you up well for your technician role. Yeah, it did. So as I said, when I came back, managed to get in a Dorset ambulance service. I went over for the interview and I remember sitting in an interview and they said, what What do you think, how do you think you'll deal with these incidents? And to have that background to be able to, to build upon and talk about was was huge when it when it came to it. And hopefully, well, it hopefully did give them the confidence that I, even though I was quite young, I was able to deal with these incidents that, that may occur. You know, I remember when I, I've been on the lifeboat cruise on and off throughout my career. And I was 17 when I got on the lifeboat crew at Plymouth for the, for the first time. I've been on there now three times. So for the first time I was 17 and I remember going to a 14 year old who'd fallen off a cliff um, and I was doing CPR. He was in traumatic cardiac arrest. And like I was 17 doing CPR on a 14 year old. There's not many individuals who would have, who've had that experience. And I think, all those little experiences build up the resilience to be able to deal with what I deal with on a day-to-day basis now. Did you ever struggle with some seeing some of the trauma or the jobs that you did see, at, you know, being so young? Possibly. I know my my parents did worry at the time, you know, like Gordon's off on the lifeboat doing these things. Is it right? Is it wrong? And back then, you know, there was a lot less emphasis on mental health. You know, on that day when I was dealing with that 14-year-old who came off the cliff I remember it vividly and I, you know, I'm 42 now 43 now oh my gosh 43 <laughs> now um and I remember that day vividly because I was lifeguarding on the beach my pager went off and it I was able to go because we had enough lifeguards and went and dealt with the situation came back to the beach and then I remember going there was a few of my friends there so we went to go to the cinema to watch Men in Black and 
maybe went to a pub, I might have nearly been 18, I guess. Um, you know, had a couple of beers, but that's how it was dealt with back then. You know, you, you used to talk, you used to talk to the crew, but you know, back in the day of those lifeboat crews, they're all big burly fishermen. And here's me as a little 17 year old wanting to have a chat about was that normal? Was that right? Did we do the right thing? Did we, is there anything else we could have done, et cetera? That, that emphasis wasn't there, but luckily it is now. And I think, you know, all these, all the agencies like Mountain Rescue, RNLI, all the ambulance services, anybody who deals with these highly traumatic events have the infrastructure to, to allow their, their staff and their volunteers to call upon them. Now it's up to those individuals to do that if they wish to, you know, we can't force anyone's hand, but I think just talking about those incidents is, is highly important and so beneficial in the long term. I think if if we all just boxed up these cases and put them in the back of our mind, it would not be healthy in the long term. Um, so it's really important to talk about them. And that could be to anyone, your family, your friends, your colleagues, whoever that may be, just have a an ear to to chat to if you if you're feeling a bit overwhelmed by stuff, which is great that it's now in place now a lot more and more in the public eye. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. So Gordon, can you tell us more about the move to the remote area paramedic role with the United Nations? After being a paramedic in Bournemouth, I actually joined HEMS for a little bit um, on Great North Air Ambulance Service and then left there and moved to a company called XMED, which was based in Hereford. It was set up by two ex-special forces medics um, and they had contracts with various companies and agencies around the world. And we used to have medics who were out on those on those contracts full time. But my role was as a medical instructor at Hereford. So I was based there and running courses for individuals now that that primarily was trauma-based courses for, and it, it was in the early days of the Afghanistan conflict. And there was a lot of people coming out of the military and going on what was called the circuit as a close protection circuit. So we used to be doing their medical training. So we do a lot of trauma courses and send them out. So that was the main focus on the role was teaching. But when there was a gap and there was a medic required to go out to those contracts and backfill, then we would take up those roles. So I ended up in places like Afghanistan, Somalia, Iraq, on the United Nations contracts. And we were there kind of to support the UN staff um, during the elections in those countries. And it, I mean, it was a, an amazing experience to, to be somebody from a civilian world, to have that access and that that experience in in a war zone was was phenomenal and it opened up a huge network of people to me but also brought about some very challenging life experiences some patients that were quite complex to deal with um, in a very remote setting now aside from the UN contracts we used to do a lot of TV and media stuff so in the in the early days of these challenges of celebrities going out on desert islands and Top Gear and all those con all those different things that you see on TV. There's always a medical company behind the scenes providing medics to those. Um, so I was lucky enough and fortunate enough to do a couple of bits on that, where you are a medic out there for that TV or film production and and kind of provide that that oversight from a medical point of view. TV and film medicines very very difficult because it sounds very Gucci and very nice and and loads of people want to do it, but from a TV and film production company medical is quite low down on their priority list because they it's basically an insurance policy you hope you're never going to have to use it but when you need to use it it needs to be good um so quite often these companies will 
try and piggyback somebody else in their team to be the medic. So for a few of these TV companies, we would train in Hereford the camera crew or the production crew in remote area medicine, tropical and topical, uh, tropical diseases, etc., um, to have to have it to deal with incidents as they happen. But some of them, they would pay for one of us to go out and and be the medic on the on the set, which which is great. That's fascinating. And is there any sort of big differences between, you know, civilian practice and the military practice and, and, and what changes or challenges did you notice? We taught a few little medi- uh, military and governmental agencies, and it is very eye opening to see what one of the government agencies that we have to deal with, to see what they would have to do with very minimal kit in a very hostile environment. And it took me a little while to get my head around how that works and how those adaptations have to have to occur. And, you know, or they might not be able to go to Hospital X because of conflict. So they might want to go further to Hospital Y or they might not have the repatriation system in place for getting patients out of those environments. So it was it was really eye opening to see how they would have to adapt and overcome to these things. But it was it was teaching them. I'm not going to say basic because I always have a bit of rant on on basic versus essential. So I don't like the word basic. I'm sure lots of people might have heard. But, you know, um, basic sounds easy. It sounds cheap. It sounds unimportant. You know, you go to Tesco's and buy Tesco's basics, whereas Waitrose is called Waitrose Essentials. So I think it should be called (laughs) Essential Life Support and Essential Airway Management, not basic, because it puts people off. Um, So we were teaching these uh, governmental agencies the essential stuff. And as long as they do the essential stuff right, then it increases the chances of survival of that patient astronomically. You know, it's it's doing the essential stuff as well as you can in that environment and um, trying to deal with that as best you can. Yeah, absolutely. And did you notice any major sort of cultural differences from a medical aspect? Not massively. I think pre-hospital care should be the same, no matter if it's civilian or governmental it's you know it, it is that system of you know from from a trauma point of view it's it's c a b c d e you know you follow that system and it doesn't matter if you you're a first aider or a consultant anesthetist it's still that it's still that same protocol that you follow i guess that's why i like it so much because even i can keep that right but um it's i think from obviously from a military point of view it's it's doing the essential stuff quickly and effectively and then moving you know and i think that translates quite often over into HEMS, into what I do now, we we try not to, uh, contrary to popular belief sometimes, we try not to spend too much time on scene and actually let's do the essential stuff, do what's needed to resuscitate that patient there and then and start moving to definitive care. Because the longer you spend on scene with these patients and doing more and more and more and more might have the opposite effect of what you're thinking it's doing. So, So just doing the essential stuff and then moving as quickly as you can so definitive care is often the best best method. And I think that's, you know, that's been learned over many years of conflict in the military, you know, in Iraq and Afghanistan with MERT, et cetera. You know, they do that phenomenally well. And it translates over to HEMS now where, where we try and kind of emulate that as much as possible. And obviously you had the experience of being in these war zones and, and these conflict areas. Did this ever intrigue you to join the military and take a more permanent role within the army or SFM route? <laughs> Great question. Yes and no. So I remember I, d- I did actually apply for the, 
Not many of my colleagues know this. Um, I'm going to get some stick. I did actually apply to the RAF reserves when Afghanistan was at its peak, and I was working at Exmoor in Hereford, and went along to see the Merc course uh, that was quite in its infancy now. I've kind of been a been back and seen it again, and it's astronomically different, but the same ethos, the same you know, the same kind of core subjects and values etc that they cover but yeah i did i did show an interest in applying for the rf reserves to do mert and got through a few stages but then so there was it turned out there was a a, a fair number of military personnel coming out of the regulars who were going to kind of cross deck over into the reserves so they took those spaces that i was going for so i think in hindsight it's probably a good thing that I didn't because my career definitely or may not have gone down the same route that it has. And I think the other thing that kind of put me off slightly was at that same time, I my we just had or were about to have a baby boy, our first, and that obviously changes your perspective sometimes, and it did for me. So you always you always make these decisions at the time for what's best at that time. And I think, yeah, it's probably probably a wise move. To be honest, my my brother was a colonel in the in the military, and he still is, but in the reserves now. But you know, he, I spoke to him about it years ago, and he said I'd I'd really struggle with decisions being made above me that I may not agree with, and not being able to influence them, or maybe not be able to kind of deal with having to follow that those kind of protocols and procedures because they just didn't make sense. But obviously in the military, you don't have the ability to stick your hand up and raise your head above the parapet and say, that's ridiculous. So maybe it wasn't for me, but you know, I, I don't regret anything I've done in my career. Um, I'm hugely fortunate and hugely humbled to have ended up where I have. So I obviously made the right decisions at the time for me. You joined Great North Air Ambulance quite early on in your career. How did you find your initial time with the charity? Yes, I was very fortunate to to become paramedic at Bournemouth and then managed to get the role at GNAS at Great North Air Ambulance Service. And when I joined back in 2000 and gosh, 2008, we were in the corner of a hangar in at Teesside Airport, a tiny room. Um, we had portaloos and that was an upgrade because before that we didn't have a toilet you had to walk across the hangar outside and or like in this tiny little little toilet so it, it was very early days of HEMS and Great North Air Ambulance Service were one of the first services in the UK to put doctors on their aircraft um, so it was a huge learning curve to go from being an autonomous paramedic to being part of a team and part of that HEMS team working with very well-trained doctors from anesthetic, emergency department backgrounds, some GPs, and and to go to the scenes of incidents of the patients within the North who were needing our assistance. And it, yeah, as I said, it was a huge learning curve to, to take that on board, to provide pre-hospital emergency anesthetics and to provide, to provide um, some surgical interventions. But it was, it was a great team and the camaraderie between all of us in that team was to to emphasize learning and shared knowledge. Um, so it was hugely beneficial to to have that and to to gain that knowledge and experience quite an early part of my career. I'm very fortunate to get that role back when I did, and it definitely opened up a lot of other things as as I went along. 
it was great to, to it's great now to think back to how it was and to see where we've come to now so it's a huge difference but you know the 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 ethos is still the same it's a it's a huge team of individuals trying to provide the best patient care that they possibly can to the patients who need it so you mentioned you had a great team and support around you why did you want to leave the reason I left was family reasons so my wife at the time her her father was becoming a little bit more unwell so we made the decision to move further south in the country which is when I moved from Genas to Exmed at Hereford so he was down in Dorset so it made sense for us to to head down there which is is the main reason I left Genas um, originally and you know I think without having that grounding and that learning and that knowledge and experience experience time at Genas it, it wouldn't have opened up other other doors you know it definitely having that hems experience then allowed me to get the job at xmed and then after xmed when we used to go out and provide remote area paramedicine and teaching you know i, I worked and did a small contract over in dubai teaching their special forces medics met up with a friend of mine who worked for abu dhabi ambulance uh, and then ended up moving out there for three years and working in Abu Dhabi. Um, so, you know, all these things happen for a reason, I believe. And um, yeah, that that reason of leaving Genas was right at the time for from a family perspective. To go to Hereford was right at the time and to go to Abu Dhabi was right at the time. Uh, and then to re- return from Abu Dhabi was, was definitely the right time to do that as well. So what does your role as head of Operations East involve with the charity? The area that we cover is um, Scottish border to Yorkshire border, although we do often go in and help those areas and from the East Coast to West Coast. Um, So it's a huge geographical area which involves, you know, the mountains of the Lake District, the National Park of Northumberland and the urban environments of the cities within it. So Newcastle, Sunderland, Middlesbrough, etc. So I look after the kind of day to day running of the eastern base. So we've got a base at Teesside. And then we've got a base over near Penrith in Cumbria. So I look after everything on the east side of the country. And then Lee Salmon, who's my colleague, um, looks after everything on the west. So we look at look after everything like from rotors to drugs to operational kit to conversing with the ambulance services to tasking to making sure that everything's kind of squared away and, and running as effectively as it can. It must be interesting being with the charity so early on in its you know, initial sort of journey and then returning and seeing the differences. Can you share your experience of that? Yeah, it was hugely different. Um, you know, when I left GNAS, I always stayed in touch with some individuals that were there within the charity. And there was a quite a big shift um, within the higher management levels. So when I returned back in 2017 to see what the charity had become, was hugely dramatic. It had become a more professional, more staff, better tasking, dealing with higher end critical patients who require higher end interventions, more interventions being provided by ourselves. Um, the training was second to none. The, the infrastructure was there. The aircraft had been upgraded. Everything, it, it's definitely a different role. And you know, myself and Lee both returned after being at GNAS previously, and both were blown away by by what we come into. And we've actually had a pilot return recently who 
was with us back when I was originally here. And even he says the same, you know, it's it's a it's a different job, it's a different workplace, it's a different establishment to be within. Um, and I think since 2017, we've changed that dramatically again. So, you know, if I think back to how it was in 2017, we were still on the airport at Teesside. We're now in our own uh, location just near the airport with our headquarters staff upstairs. Everyone's under one roof, you know, so everyone's co-located. So the team has just, the clinical side has expanded, but also we've got a much bigger team because it involves all the fundraisers, all HR, all payroll, all the um, marketing, PR, all these people are now part of our team. And there's a there's a huge family ethos around that and um, and a new chief exec who's, who's pushing the charity from strength to strength. And was it what you expected working within HEMS? Because obviously there's a lot of paramedics out there who have, you know, big aspirations. They want to be a critical care paramedic or they want to work on HEMS. Was it was it really what it cracked up to be in your mind? Yes, and, and more, I would say. It's why did I become a paramedic? Because I watched casualty, possibly. And you know, <laughs> they're all going to going to big cases and um, you know, everyone's really sick. And, you know, they're the ones, they're the patients that you want to provide that help to. And being in HEMS allows you that ability to go to those patients who are, who are the most critical, the most unwell, and, and be able to provide the best level of care that you can to them. Um, so, yeah, I would say it, it was what I expected. I think, you know, we're constantly striving to better ourselves because we are a group of individuals who are ultimately all like that. And we're constantly tra- striving to better the service and go to more patients where we can make a big difference. You know, the ambulance service do a phenomenal job dealing with 98% of the patients out there. But it's that small, minutiae number at the top where paramedics and ambulance clinicians of any level need to be aware that they are at the le- that they are at the end of their skill set and knowledge and they need to call upon somebody else and to recognize that you know i think all paramedics are taught to adapt and overcome or i was back in the day um you know oh this doesn't work so we'll do that instead and we'll we'll try and manipulate something to to function in the in the best method possible and that's what we used to do because we used to not have many people that you could call upon or the time it would take for a specialist resource to get there would be so prolonged that it would be quicker just to to adapt and overcome and take the hospital. But nowadays with HEMS being available 24 seven, then every clinician should have the ability to call upon somebody else of a possibly a slightly higher skill set, possibly a slightly higher knowledge base to provide that care to the patient. Just because you can adapt and overcome doesn't always mean you, you should. And we recognize that ourselves. There are some cases within HEMS that, you know, that patient needs to be on the surgeon's table. And we need to get that patient to that to that definitive care as quickly as possible, doing the essential stuff and passing them on to somebody of a higher skill set, of a higher knowledge base, and hopefully progress their their recovery. I find it really interesting how you you know the adapt and overcome ethos. Uh, I think it's really fascinating concept and. I'm just curious to get your thoughts on within the ambulance service at the moment, that more lateral thinking, I sometimes feel that we are limited by the guidelines and the procedures that are placed upon us. What's your opinion on that? Yeah, that's a really good point. I think, you know, with with some cases, there are some skills and some drugs and some procedures that if you're not doing them consistently, then your skill fade will occur. 
and errors could happen because of that. So, for instance, you know, surgical airways uh, as as one that you know is always raising its head in in the public domain. And you know, paramedics when I was trained were all trained in needle cricothyroidotomy. Now that's that's great. It's you know, it's it's getting access to somebody who requires it and it allows you to oxygenate but not ventilate the patient effectively so you know you're using an iv cannula which isn't designed for the job to try and adapt and overcome a problem and that's okay but it's not great so do we train every paramedic to do a surgical airway which is a a cuff tube inside the trachea which is obviously better however the downside of that is you then have to train every single paramedic in that skill and then how do you keep those paramedics current in doing that skill how often are they actually going to perform that skill and how are they going to keep their competency for that rare skill to be able to provide it when that time is necessary now i'm on the fence with this one because you know if a patient needs a surgical airway it need that patient needs it there and then and not in 15 minutes time when hems or a critical care paramedic arrives so it's a real rock and a hard place as to what we do. Now, unfortunately, I'm not saying anything untoward here. It all comes down to money and finances and um, pressure. So, you know, for for the general ambulance service to say, right, we're going to train every single paramedic and surgical airways. Let's bring them all off the road and sit them in a classroom and go through it and put them in a cadaver lab and go through it. It's financially unrealistic, I would say, to do that for the thousands of paramedics that are out there on the road and is it more beneficial to train a specialist paramedic a critical care paramedic whoever that may be to provide that skill as and when it's needed if they're going to go to the higher end cases so it all comes down to things like that and i think ultimately it's pressure on the system pressure on the service you know i still occasionally do road shifts for an ambulance company um just to keep my hand in and to to realize you know the, that there are a huge number of patients that still need that patient care be, with it with it not being critical and you know there's nothing better sometimes than going to mrs miggins it's always mrs miggins going to mrs miggins um who's fallen over needs assistance back up needs making a cup of tea needs a, you know a friendly face to talk to for 10 15 minutes and you know that's hugely beneficial to that patient and i think what everyone needs to remember is just because something isn't an emergency in your mind, it may be an emergency and maybe the worst thing that's ever happened to them in their life. So it's their emergency and we have to treat every patient in, in that same respect. So it's very easy, I think. You know, I get it when I go on the road, you know, a job comes in on the Terrafix and you're like, oh, really? You're getting an ambulance for this on blue lights and sirens? Oh, the system's broken, et cetera, et cetera. But actually, we can't change that as an individual. You know, that patient has called for help. We're the ones that have to go and help that patient and provide them the best care that they can. You know, um, it was actually yourself, Sophie, who who got me onto the High Performance Podcast, a fantastic podcast. I recommend it to everyone. And I was listening to one the other week and somebody got asked, what is high performance? And I loved the, the saying that, the, the presenter said it's doing the best you can with what you have where you are and that's high performance it doesn't matter if you're a first aider at an event it doesn't matter if you're a critical care paramedic at the scene of a traumatic cardiac arrest it doesn't matter if you're doing something so low level but just still doing the best you can 
where you are with what you have. It's those three things that makes it a high performance that makes you high performing. And I think that's hugely beneficial to bear in mind. And that, that's stuck in my head and has done for quite for, for a while. And it's something that I want to share to, to everyone really is that patient's emergency is their emergency. It might not be in your mind, but it is in theirs. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's really good to remember. When I was a student, I used to, you know, you do get caught up in, I think, sometimes with the jobs that you go to and you, you're very impressionable and you listen to a lot of the negativity sometimes. However, I sort of used to think, well, if I'm going to get better, the, the best thing to do is just go into each job and try and take something away from it, no matter what the job is. But I'm going to do my absolute best for this patient. And I think as a paramedic or a newly qualified paramedic or a student, if you have that mindset, you are going to get better from every job you go to and always try and look back and think could I have done anything differently what would you have changed etc and I think it's a, a really healthy uh, mindset you know an approach really yeah hugely I mean I've just come off night shift and two nights ago I was um, with one of our doctors and um, she's a fantastic doctor and we went to a cardiac arrest a, the crew requested us to attend when we got there actually the patient was making a small amount of respiratory effort. She was very stable, et cetera. And something I try and urge our doctors to do is not to take over and not to kind of hear a hems, you know, like well, we're here now, stand aside. And hopefully that misdemeanor, that kind of that misconception has, has gone over the years because we've tried ridiculously hard to get rid of that. You know, the first sentences that come out of my mouth when we arrive is how can we help you? You know, we're not there to do anything but help. But we went to a cardiac arrest and the doctor I was with did a phenomenal job because what she did was there was a student paramedic and the student paramedic did the pre-alert, she did the handover in A&E, with two people behind her who are in red suits, you know, which is probably quite unnerving, but to give that student the ability to to learn and to to be able to to take on board all the experience that would have that would have made her her month, and that that hopefully will stick with her for her career because that consultant emergency medicine consultant allowed her to still be that main participant in that in that case yeah absolutely that's good to hear thank you for sharing that can you share your experiences of any challenging environments or incidents or just jobs that really stand out in your mind there's a number of jobs that do stand out in my mind what I do find bizarre is being on hems I often go to incidents and somebody will see me and say to me, oh, how was that case from last week that you attended? I was there. And I personally, I don't remember every case. And I need to be aware of that. It's something that I need to reflect upon because what may have been quite a, they still need a critical care, but a lower level of critical care. And I'll put it in, I'll put it to the back of my mind and often kind of forget about it. But that case might've been, one of the most serious cases that that road crew paramedic or ambulance clinician of whatever grade they are has been to. So it's very difficult sometimes to, to remember every job, but there are certain ones that stick out in my mind. They're, they're obviously the ones that have some nuances to them, maybe a little bit out of the ordinary. The one that does really stick in my mind and um, I do some presentations on it is there was one shift where myself and the doctor was working 
on a night shift and we actually had a special forces medic with us observing and we went to three cases one after the other all of which were high level high natured cases and one of those jobs would have been a big job but have three on the back and the middle job was actually a 24 year old female who was 27 weeks pregnant who was in cardiac arrest and control rang us said oh do you want to go to this and we're like absolutely so one of the interventions that we can do is a resistive hysterotomy which is a pre-hospital cesarean section to deliver baby to increase the chances of survival of mum now that had never been done in the north in the pre-hospital world before in pre-hospital setting before but we talked about it as we were driving there you know where are we going to be within our timelines etc for providing that surgical procedure we arrived on scene patient was pregnant patient was still in pa so we delivered baby you know, for the ambulance crew that were there, it was a hugely intensive situation. There was a lot of logistics around it because suddenly you have two patients, not once. So you need those extra ambulances. You know, you have annoyingly all these patients, as we know, when they're sick and poorly, they go upstairs. They don't go to the front room near the doors. So this patient was up three flights of stairs in an old Victorian house. The extrication was very difficult. And, you know, we we delivered baby. I resuscitated baby while the doc carried on with, with mum and transported both to hospitals, separate hospitals because of different hospital capabilities. And, you know, fortunately, baby survived, has gone on to hopefully live a, a full, well life. Uh, unfortunately, and what we actually thought would happen when we were at the scene was mum passed away, but that wasn't after, you know, hard work from ourselves and the ambulance team that were there, along with handing her over to surgical and anesthetics and everybody, you know, it was very early in the morning going into Christmas Eve a number of years ago and I've never seen a resuscitation department staff that number of clinicians awaiting our arrival but one of the fantastic things was the ED consultant who was on shift that night works for us on HEM so he was aware of what we'd done how we'd have, we would have done it was able to relay all that information to the awaiting team and quite often when we arrive on at hospital the resuscitation rooms are busy and people start jumping in on the patients, et cetera, and doing what's necessary, which is fully understandable. But when we turned up with this patient, everyone was, you know, completely silent. You could hear a pin drop. They allowed us to move the patient over to the bed, allowed us to give that full, consistent, accurate handover of what had happened. And then they started working on mum. So, so to have that knowledge and ability as to being able to provide that critical intervention at the time was was huge now obviously ambulance crews were aware that we can you know provide thoracostomies provide thoracotomy blood pre-hospital emergency anesthetics etc but when we said we were gonna deliver the baby there was a lot of jaws hitting the floor of the ambulance crews but now that it's we've now done a couple within GNAS in the pre-hospital world and it's definitely something that the ambulance crews think about you know you go to a pregnant female who may be in cardiac arrest or peri-arrest, then get HEMS on the way because there is something that we can't do that they can do that can increase the chances of survival of both mum and baby. Yeah, thank you for sharing. That's a um, pretty incredible case. And how how did you find that as a, as a paramedic? And how, how did you feel after dealing with such a case? How did I find it? Amazingly, I found it okay. Um, you know, we were driving to the case. I was driving the car. Doc was next to me and he said, look, if we're going to do it, this is how we're going to do it. Um, this is probably what's going to happen. He'd done one in the hospital, but years before. And 
luckily with the, with the special forces medic that we had with us, he was very useful in creating space. You know, this bedroom had a, a huge bed in it. So he made sure that bed was, he actually turned the bed on its side and kicked out all the slats. So actually mm -hmm. our access and egress was through the bed frame itself, um, which was genius because then we had the whole floor space to work upon. But when we arrived on scene, you know, the ambulance crew were doing a phenomenal job. They were doing advanced life support. They were, the patient was in a left lateral tilt position. They'd done all the essential stuff, which is all that is needed quite often, especially to increase the chance of survival when they get passed on to higher levels of care. But when I got handed baby, baby was as white as as white as my coffee mug here. And, you know, like, and you do fall to the level of your training. Now we have the luxury within Genas of not being busy all the time. So we can train often and we simulate, we do sims, simulations every day you know and i heard something just recently you should train the things you do often as often as possible but you should train the things you don't do often more often than that so you know newborn life support it's an algorithm i followed it it comes to the front of your mind you know i'm trained in it i'm confident in it, it comes to the front of your mind and you just go through that stepwise motion of, of you know of doing everything that you need to do and I wasn't expecting that baby to pink up after three to five minutes. I wasn't that expecting that baby's heart rate to increase. I wasn't expecting that baby to be making respiratory effort as I handed it over to hospital. But at the time, you just kind of go on into that mindset of this is what's needed. I will do it as the best that I can. Afterwards, there's definitely a, a release of adrenaline there. And you kind of you're aware that you've just done something that only yourself and that doctor could have done at that time within your region, you know, and to have that mind, that that thought in your mind is is quite big. It's definitely something, you know, this is three, four, five years on. I can't remember when it was, but I still reflect upon it. And when I give talks on it, I seem to remember different things and I still learn from those different things as we go through it. So, you know, reflection is huge. And what we actually did is, I, I contacted control and said, look, all the ambulance clinicians that were there, we need to all meet. We met at the heart base and talked through the job, explained why we did, when we did it, what we were doing, what our mindset was and any concerns and shared that experience and shared that learning and knowledge because I didn't want any of those. You know, there were student paramedics there, there was technicians there, there was paramedics there, heart were there, et cetera. I didn't want anybody to be going home that night or that morning because it was a night shift and thinking, what on earth just happened you know we needed to be clear and concise and consistent in our delivery of what we've done to that patient is the best possible care that they could have had so yeah it was definitely a a shift to remember and it was going into christmas eve so it was definitely a christmas i won't forget yeah it's incredible and i believe you have given that talk to well as part of your role with the faculty of pre-hospital care is that right yeah, so I do quite a bit of work for the Faculty of Care, so I'm the regional group chair. So within the region, within the UK, the faculty are trying to establish regions. Um, those regions have been around for a while and there's representatives from each region. So I've got the role of kind of managing all those regions and allowing all those regions to put on events and put on CPD throughout the year. Um, so what we've kind of established is new representatives throughout the UK. It's all on, on the faculty website. Um, so if you've got any interest, then please go and look and contact your faculty. Hopefully they've all got, you know, Twitter pages, Facebook groups, um, and you can see events. So what our plan 
is and is kind of happening as we go through it is each region will run one event a year. So East of England will do January, Wales will do February, Northeast will do March, and they'll all be streamed online. So anybody throughout the country can log on and see that region's CPD event. But people within local that region can obviously go along the event and see a keynote speaker and, and have some learning and some good networking. And that's how kind of Prosport Cares kind of push forward is conferences and CPD events and people sharing knowledge and experience. And I have attended some of those webinars and helped with some of the examinations. And I believe the faculty of pre-hospital care have got their conference, which is in November this year. Is that correct? Yeah, that is correct. Yes. In November this year, it was scheduled for the for a couple of months just gone, but it was rescheduled for November this year and it should be a really good conference. And uh, yeah, so if you're interested in in coming along, please do get in touch with the faculty and you'll find some tickets there and come along. So Gordon, we can't talk about the Faculty of Pre-Hospital Care without mentioning the Diploma in Immediate Medical Care. Can you explain to our listeners what the DIP IMC is and what it involves? Yeah, so the DIP IMC is an examination over a couple of days, um, which involves some skill stations as well as a written paper. It has been around for quite some time. It's gone through a few different changes of structure, etc. It's basically it's a it's an exam that assesses your level of competence within pre-hospital care. Now, originally it, it was kind of an exam that everyone strived to get within paramedicine. And I'll be honest and put my hands up. I put off doing the DIP IMC for far too many years, and mainly because I had, you know, huge imposter syndrome. And, you know, I didn't think I was good enough to pass it. You know, oh, doctors went and did this exam, but it's open to paramedics. I'm not sure. I don't know many paramedics that have done it, et cetera. And then what well, I realized that through my career, you end up knowing more and more people. And then I had that worry of, oh, I'm now going to go and put myself in front of colleagues and people I know throughout the country and they're going to go, oh, here's Gordon, this will be okay. And, and I don't want to be seen to fail or not, not be as good as I hope I am. So I put off for years and years and years. And then when I rejoined Genus, I kind of said to myself and two of my colleagues, look, let's just go and do it. You know, we've got nothing to lose. Let's go and do it. We can learn through our, from our colleagues that have done it. And that's hugely important and kind of, prepare ourselves as much as possible. I went along and I did the exam and I'll be honest, I my anxiety was through the roof. Um, so I was on one day, so we all sat the exam together. Everyone sits and does the written paper together. And I think it's 120 questions in 120 minutes. Um, so it's 180 questions, 180 minutes, Either one of the two. It's a lot of questions in a lot of minutes. And there's one question <laughs> per minute. And it's single best answer, which, again, is something new to me as a paramedic, you know. So you read a question and there might be five answers. Which one is the best of those answers is what you need to work out. So it's not just right or wrong. It's which one's the most right, um, which was a huge thing to get my head around. But work through the paper. And then I had the practicals on one day and then my colleagues had the practicals the next day. And I remember coming out of the practicals on the on the day that I had mine, went back to my accommodation and I was actually sick. Uh, and all it was, <laughs> it, was the, it wasn't the curry and beers from the night before. It was just a release of adrenaline after having done this exam. Now, I urge anyone out there who's keen on doing the dip IMC, do not, do not let that put you off. Okay, it's, <laughs> we all did the exam. 
um, we all passed the exam. And what I would say is that it's a fair exam for paramedics, doctors, nurses, military to establish a baseline of your level of care within the pre-hospital world. Um, the nothing's there trip you up the examiners want you to pass they obviously can't help you in the in the um, assessment side of things but you know they don't want anyone to fail but what they want to see is the essential stuff done correctly you know you might have a skill station where it is place an io or you might have a skill station where it is an als station or a trauma station what they want to see is that you have the knowledge and the ability to deal with that situation there and then and you know all the all the practical stations are marked as a as a group so even if you flunk one station and you walk out of it and go i just that was a nightmare you need to put it to one side and carry on with the others because yes you may have not done great on that one station but your global marks may be enough to get you over the pass line so it's a great experience i know of, of clinicians that have passed i know clinicians that have failed i know clinicians that have passed part of it and not the other part it's all okay it doesn't make you any different a clinician, a lot of it is exam technique. So what I would say is if you want to do the dip IMC is to talk to people that have done it, go to the website. There is videos on what it involves. There's videos on what to expect, the kit that you're going to use, the assistants that are there to help you in your scenarios, um, gain knowledge from as many people as you can who've done the exam to be prepare yourself from it for it, because there it is different to anything you would have probably done in your paramedic training or paramedic career yeah absolutely that's a great insight thank you Gordon and I believe you are hoping to undergo the fellowship in immediate medical care so the FIMC yeah. how does this differ from the DIP IMC yeah this, <laughs> I've got a nervous <laughs> laugh in my, <laughs> nervous in my in my voice I mean it's it's an aspiration that I'd love to do the fellowship in immediate medical care is the kind of the highest level of qualification that you get within pre-hospital emergency medicine. You know, the diploma is that baseline of what is your level like regarding pre-hospital care. The fellowship is, you know, it's what all of our HEMS consultants and trainees need to to gain to work or to to kind of be registered as a as a pre-hospital care consultant. Again, paramedics are open to apply to it. Um, there's been a paramedic from down south who's who's done the exam who's done the 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 simulations and passed so he kind of lifted that benchmark we all want to strive to be better doing the FIMC will make you a better clinic doing the dip IMC will make you a better clinician doing the FIMC will make you a better clinician because you have to get your heads in the books and learn now people have asked me in the past what which textbooks do I read for the dip or the F and there isn't one, okay? There isn't a textbook that you have to part, read and learn to pass the DIP or the F. It's it's a it's a global knowledge of pre-hospital care. You know, that can be anything from major incidents to OBS and gynae to trauma to medicine to ACS to whatever it may be. There's some, some obscure questions in, in both the exams, I'm sure. I only know about the DIP, but both the exams will have some obscure questions in, but it'll still be applicable. There is a curriculum so anybody that's interested in this and doing the dip IMC or the FIMC, there is a curriculum that you can get through IBT FEM through the Faculty of Hospital Care, and that maps out all the curriculum. So there is different sections that you need to have knowledge of, and it breaks those down into what can be assessed in a diploma of immediate medical care and what can be assessed in the fellowship. So it does break them apart a little bit. I'd love to do it. 
it's something I, I'd really strive to do. I think the one thing that I've got against me is, at the moment is time and capacity because it it is a big thing to do and you need to create a portfolio of evidence to show that you're experienced and qualified enough to firstly take the exam and then after you've done the exam, you need to do another portfolio to go along with your passing the exam to become level eight accredited or level seven accredited. You are a out and alive volunteer and a lifeboat crew member and you have recently is it join the crew or rejoin the crew? Yeah, so I've rejoined the crew. So as I said before, I was or originally on the crew from the ages of 17 to 20 when I was in Timemouth. So I think I was possibly the youngest ever crew person because I got given my pager on my 17th birthday because back in the day, the rules and regulations weren't as strict. So I used to go out on exercise as a as a visitor and do all my training so when I became 17 I got my pager when I, when I was 17 so but that was in the long before the days of social media and any knowledge of that um so did it then and then when I was at Bournemouth Ambulance Station I lived in a little village called Mudderford um which is a beautiful little village on the Dorset coast um and I joined Mudderford lifeboat crew at time off they they had the big Aaron class that it was back then then replaced it with a seven class which is a big all-weather lifeboat and we also had a d class which is a small little inshore rescue boat at mudderford they had a atlantic 85 or 75 back then they've now got an 85 so it was a different boat different type of rescues less crew because less crew need to go out on the boat because it's a smaller boat and then when i joined hems for the first time i was living in timemouth was back on the boat then and then left to go to Hereford. And then now I'm back back in my home village, have have just recently rejoined the crew. So even though I've rejoined, there's six of us, I think, that are either newly joined or rejoined as myself and one other who've been on the crew previously. We're going through the the intricacies of you know of training and knowledge and and building that experience to become probation crew, which you do for a year. And and then and your full crew after that. So, so yeah, starting that process again is really interesting. And to see, it's a bit like the air ambulance has changed over the years to see how the RNLI has changed over the years. And, you know, health and safety is huge and everything has to be accounted for and accountable and any risks have to be effectively managed. You know, back in the day, we used to all just jump on the boat and off you go on a training exercise. Now it's mapped out with what we're going to do, where we're going to do it, who's going to do what, etc. And it's all debriefed afterwards. So there's a lot of similarities between what we do on HEMS and what we do in the ambulance service as to what they do now in the RNLI, which is fantastic to see. It comes down to that high-performing team. The difference with the RNLI lifeboat crews is it's a group of volunteers. You know, you might have a, an electrician, a paramedic, a policeman, a teacher, all trying to provide the best level of care and experience and and rescue in a, in the safe safest manner possible and you know I, I tip my hat to the rnli because what they've put in place with with everything they've done over the years is create that professional rescue service you know it's 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 second to none i think we're hugely beneficial in the uk um, when you look worldwide at what's around in other countries developed countries and developing countries for us to have the rnlis is massive it's it's a great institution and proud to be a part of and proud to be back in that that team of people who are all doing the, doing the right thing for the patient 
you know, and no more is it kind of driving to the station as quickly as possible and, you know, within the rules of the road, obviously, but <laughs> as quickly as possible when the first crew get there, go out on the boat, it's a it's a more measured, planned rescue when we go out on service. You know, it's a, right, this is a medical job, so actually Gordon's put on his pit on his phone that he's on the way at the station, so let's wait three minutes for, for him to get here or or it's or it's not a medical job. We don't need to wait for somebody with a medical background because all RNLI crew members are trained in casualty care, which is a, a fantastic course. You know, I, I know the chap that very well who developed that course. And to see what happens when an untrained medic, as it were, a, no, a non-professional medic provides medical care to to a patient, you know, I've I've been to the jobs at the lifeboat station and, and for the lifeguards and to see the level of care that they can deliver following that casualty care process it's it's phenomenal it's 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 a great system that is in place and these check cards and go through it systematically and allow are able to provide um, some drugs and some analgesia um, and some interventions that 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 are essential and you know it, it comes down to that essential management of the of the patient so it's great to be in a another group of like-minded individuals to provide the best care possible yeah that's that's great insight thank you gordon and it's just fascinating isn't it like when you're in the team and, and you understand more about the rnli it's really interesting to see you know how much things they do go to and how much training is involved and how professional it is and it is, you know, it's led and ran by incredible people and also just really inspiring people that are part of that crew. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the shouts that you've been on without giving any confidential information away? The one that sticks out in my mind is the one I've spoken about already, that, that 15-year-old when I was only 17. But, you know, the, within our area at Timemouth, we've got some beaches that are very popular for surfing. Um, so we've got a lot of surfing incidents. We go to, unfortunately, a lot of suicides. So we've got some big cliffs around us, which are which are a bit of a hot spot for for people who, who may be struggling with their mental health. So go to quite a few of them. I think Timemouth recently had the longest time at sea on a rescue. They had a I wasn't on the boat. Um, it was before I just rejoined, but they had a rescue, and I think it took I can't remember how many hours, but it was gosh, I'd hate to guess because I might get it wrong, but it was miles and miles offshore to a boat that needed some assistance and it wasn't a critical incident when they left the station but you know that that boat was had lost power and needed a long tow back back to the mainland and you know that that crew were out at sea for I can't remember how many hours but it was an extremely long time and it was the longest one recorded by the RNLI and that was in Beenham very quite recently like last year I think it was or the year before so you know you do get a lot of varieties of of rest rescues i think part of it is you, you never know what you're going to go to it's that unknown until you get to the station and find out actually what you're being tasked to it's that unknown knowledge of somebody out there somewhere needs your assistance be that medical or be that a broken down boat or whatever it may be somebody swept out to sea lost person or somebody with suicide due to mental health it's um it, it can be a variety of anything so it's definitely varied and it's definitely interesting but yeah, the, the team camaraderie there is is very similar to that at HEMS and everyone's striving to do the right thing. They're very forward thinking, aren't they, with the medical care? Because I believe uh, Penthrox was introduced to the RNLI two years ago. And I think it was Pool Lifeboat Station uh, that were one of the first to use it. 
you know, Penthrox is fantastic. It's methoxyfluorine for those of you that aren't sure about the drug itself, but it's a, a it's an anesthetic drug. It's been used hugely in Australia by the lifeguards out there. It's it's a great analgesic. It's it's actually one of the only analgesics that we had when we were out in Abu Dhabi. So when I was working out there on the ambulances, we had Penthrox, and you know. Because of the culture out there, opioids were very difficult to have and hold and, and utilize. So Penthrox was often given to patients who would have sustained major trauma. But to see how it works effectively is is great. It's a it's a really effective drug for those that need it. Yeah, it's been recently brought into the RNLI and I think Mountain Rescue are trialing it at the moment. I think Northumberland Mountain Rescue team are, are trialing that as well at the moment. Um, so it's going to become more, more and more commonplace in these agencies that provide care in the remote setting. And I think it's a very good thing to have on board. Pardon the pun. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Gordon. After having spent a lot of your career in all these different environments, learning new skills and challenging yourself in different ways, I want to ask, has this given you a different perspective on your career and personal life? Yeah, I think, you know, I've been very fortunate in my career. You know, I'm very humble to do what I do. And there's never a day when I wake up and if I've got to go to work, I don't want to go to work. It's possibly I've spoken to I spoke to one of my colleagues, Jamie Walsh, um, about this recently and you know you take annual leave and I'm the head of operations Jamie's the head of training and you take annual leave and actually you you still got an awareness of what's going on at work and you hear somebody's had a a big job and done something quite quite forward thinking and you almost feel a little bit jealous so it definitely takes up a massive part of your life from a personal life perspective I was married for a number of years and I've got two fantastic boys, Ollie and Jacob. And my ex-partner, she was so supportive of my career and followed me around the world and went to different places. And, you know, I I hope that it gave her the the experiences that that not only I had, but she shared. And and to have that support is is phenomenal you know i think we all need that support through our lives and you know i've got a huge support from my my brother and my sister um but also my my peers and my colleagues you know that they're, they're not just people i work with they're friends you know within hems we'll all socialize together we'll all sometimes go on holidays together go into events together it really is that camaraderie type thing and personally i i try and make as much time as i can for out of work experiences and out of work time but it's often difficult to do that because of the the pressures of work and I think it's really important that we all if it does get too much we recognize that and we do something about it you know some of my colleagues are very very good at um setting aside work and home I'm not put my hands up I'm, I'm not as great at that so it's something I need to work upon and we're only here once so they say so you've got to kind of make sure you're not just existing, but you're living. You know, I, I used to surf, obviously, a lot when I was younger. I don't surf as much now, so I want to try and re-establish that in my life, um, being back next to the coast and and just relinking in with people that may have been really influential in my life when I was younger and making those links back is is highly important. You know, unfortunately, I was at a funeral the other day of a, of a close friend, and often at these funerals you see people that you haven't seen for 20 years and you know we're all there at the wake going we need to do this we need to get together we need to go on a surf trip we need to kind of just get on the beach one of one of my close friends he now runs a a a yoga class and just things like that just that reconnection of people 
and reconnection of individuals and friends that you know you you want to have in your life and can be beneficial to your life yeah absolutely so Gordon your drive and investment and motivation for what you do really stands out in all the different roles that you do where has this drive come from and why do you continuously challenge yourself that's a really great question where does it come from I'm not sure. I think it's probably, I mean, everyone's personality is different. Everyone's drive and enthusiasm is different. I think, you know, I always want to do the best I can wherever I am. And I always want to try and better myself. And I I don't know where the kind of the drive and the passion for that comes from. I'm glad it's there. You know, I'm glad I'm glad I'm not somebody that will just kind of float through life. But if people do, then that's absolutely fine. You know, everyone's got their own niches and interests and and their their wants and desires i think there's a certain personality within high performing teams be that hems be that heart be that critical care whatever that may be you know sport etc and those those personalities do want to consistently be the best they can at that time and i think the main the main drive for me is the patient if i think about it logically it's the patient who needs our care at that time and I don't want to be a person delivering substandard care to one patient one day and good care or higher than good care the next day it should be a standard and should be able to provide the same level of care whatever's happened at the top of your knowledge and abilities as much as you can so I would say yeah it's probably the patient that's driven me through my career you know it's it's definitely it's 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 as I said earlier it's, it's their emergency doesn't matter if it's yours it's theirs and they they deserve the best care that you possibly get are you self-critical yes yeah i am <laughs> uh, can you expand <laughs> on 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 why i think i'm self-critical at work because again you you want to make sure you've done the best you can you know within hands we have the luxury of, of as i said earlier of time you know, every case that we go to, we come back, we debrief for learning, because as you said earlier, you know, it doesn't matter what level of acuity that job is, there's always something to be learned from it. Self-criticism is is a positive and to be able to reflect and build upon it, I would say is, is hugely beneficial to the next patient that you might be dealing with. Whatever decision you make at that time, you've always made it with the best intent, be that personal or professional. And I think, you know, that decision may be wrong. But it's not an error for that decision to be wrong. But as long as you reflect on it and build upon it and try not to make that same decision again in the same circumstances, then then that's fine. You know, we're all human at the end of the day and we're all going to make mistakes. You know, in every workplace and every personal situation, mistakes are made. But I personally believe that if you make those mistakes and you build from them and push yourself forward from it then then that's that's a positive so just because something didn't go as well as it could have done or just because you've made a decision that wasn't possibly right at the time when you reflect upon it as long as you build upon it and and move forward with it then then that's a positive that you can take from it and how do you personally deal with those mistakes or failures when they occur i'm a bit of an overthinker so i would say that if something does happen that I wasn't 100% happy with or couldn't justify on reflection, then I'll I'll learn from it. And, you know, it may take me, it may be something simpler, it'll take me half an hour, it may be something big and it'll take me a few days, you know, or longer. But sharing that knowledge and those concerns with my colleagues, with those closest to me, and to get some 
rationalization of my thoughts and my and and my kind of concerns is is paramount what i've learned over the years is if you if you sit down and just constantly think about something over and over and over and over and over again it's going to eat you away and it's you're not going to be able to deal with it and compartmentalize it and move on from it so i'm so fortunate to have family and friends and peers and colleagues and those closest to me that i can share and talk to and yeah doing that helps hugely and it doesn't matter what level of your at your career you're at or personal life you're at it's it's having that ability and and the right people around you to to offset to and to to kind of download your brain to and for them to say it's okay you know it, it's all right you can build upon this how much have you been influenced by the people around you hugely you know it's all through my career there have been people that have been influential you know from my early surfing days and working in Cornwall from a chap called Chris Ray, who's one of, still one of my closest friends who, you know, he's, he guided me through some very difficult times. You know, I lost my mum when I worked for him at the age of 21 or 20 turning 21 through to colleagues at work. You know, I've already mentioned people at Dorset, um, the likes of Dave Halliwell and Rob Clark and, my one of my closest mentors was a chap called Simon Trenchard, who still works at Dorset now. He's a, a great clinician and a very close friend. But some again, you know, life gets in the way of living sometimes. Uh, I've lost touch with a bit with Simon. Messaged him the other day because it was his birthday, and you know, we need to hook back up and make make that happen. You know, and but there's been so many people. There's been countless people through my life, and you know, you've got to learn from all those people. You can learn something from everyone. And you just have to take away the best bits of those people to 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 put into your practice and your personality, I think. And it, it can shape you. You know, my family, my boys, my ex-partner, my my brother and my sister, uh are hugely influential to me. You know, my brother, I mean, I need to do a big shout out to my brother. He's a fantastic individual and quite a similar personality, very driven, very, very career-minded. You know, he's a colonel he's a consultant moothist he's you know he's he's done so unbelievably well in his career as has my sister in her career and you know to have their backing and their their um their support is is huge but i guess the other two hugely influential people are my two boys ollie and jacob they make me pull my hair out but they make me laugh so much at the same time you know they're, they're awesome and you know I don't spend much time surfing myself now but I can't wait for the summer where they're in the water as, as much as possible because they they're suddenly getting the passion for it. To narrow it down what traits and qualities do you value most in people? Honesty, integrity, professionalism, being there when needed I would say like kind of you know we've all got friends and colleagues that we can call upon but you know there's there's a couple of people in my life that I know that if I ring them they'll answer the phone day or night doesn't matter they'll they'll be there for me you know um and that's hugely important and I'd like to think that I'm there for them whenever they need me I think uh it's not wrong to ask for help sometimes it's hard to ask for help sometimes it's the hardest thing in the world to to say I need some help here but quite often if you ask for that help it's there and it's 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 provided with minimal judgment and a lot of support. Thank you, Gordon. That's that's good to know. What's next for yourself then? Any future aspirations? Yeah, have some have some more time. <laughs> um, 
have have as much time as I can with the boys, show them and influence them that whatever you whatever you want to achieve, you can. It doesn't matter your background, your your kind of stature, who you are, what you are, where you're from. Um, you can achieve anything that you put set your heart and mind to. I didn't think that I'd be the head of operations for an air ambulance in the UK when I started my career back in 2005 I never thought that would be possible so you know if I can if I can get to that level which I'm very happy with and not planning on going any higher I don't want to be the director of operations I don't want to be the chief exec um but yeah I think to influence them that that they can do whatever they want you know if they want to be an astronaut they can if they want to be a fighter jet pilot they can if they want to be a big man they can you know they, they, whatever whatever they want to do as long as they're happy in life that's that's what i would do is to influence them as much as i can professionally what do i want to do yeah i need, yes, I need to say i'd love to do the fimc you know i'm saying that a little <laughs> kind of reluctantly because it scares me yeah i'd like to spend as much time as possible as i can kind of in the hills getting the boys out getting myself out there in the hills walking etc as well as in the sea but also push myself professionally so probably the the FOMC is the next big tip. Well, we wish you all the best with that, Gordon. <laughs> I need it. I need all that. <laughs> so if it's okay, we're going to move on to our quick fire questions now. Mm-hmm. Are you ready? This is, this is scary. <laughs> yeah. What is your biggest flaw? What's the biggest flaw? Life admin, I would say, you know, keeping on top of finances and keeping on top of um things that just need doing in life general stuff like that mm-hmm. is my biggest flaw I'm not very good at that and I was actually chatting to a doctor I was with last night and um I've got zero man skills you know like DIY engine <laughs> repair anything like that decorating I'm terrible at that stuff so yeah I would say those things oh, and I'm a terrible patient if I get if I get sick I'm awful <laughs> if you could go back to one moment what would it be there's several of them. Wow. One moment. Finding out I was going to be a dad for the first time. I was in Kabul on video chat with my son's mum. And yeah, I, I I remember it very well. It kept getting brought up throughout our marriage that I was watching a surfing contest on the, on the laptop and having a half conversation by a by a Skype or whatever it was back then. And she had a pregnancy test next to her computer and we kept looking at it. I think she'd spoken to a friend of hers and said, Do I tell him? Do I not? What if something happens out there and he doesn't know? Um and yeah, then she told me that and I went and smoked a big cigar and had a beer. So yeah, that that was awesome. But also I was very fortunate to go out to Fiji a couple of times with World Extreme Medicine to work on a TV production out there. And that was that was phenomenal. So, you know, providing good medical care, uh, but also surfing some of the best waves I ever have in the world. That was definitely a, a plus to that little contract. That was cool. But yeah, the birth of my boys, I would say, and finding out that Ollie, uh, that Ollie was going to be joining us. Nice. What is your most strongly held belief? This is deep. Wow. Uh, <laughs> they're not very quick fire sorry this is maybe quick fire uh strongest belief believe that you can help everyone and believe that believe that you don't know everyone's backstory so don't judge anyone Mm, i like that what do you wish you learned sooner that it's okay to make mistakes physical strength or mental strength 
I, <laughs> I fail on both those counts. So um, I think physical strength can help your mental strength. You know, if you're fit and healthy, um, I'm not as nowhere near as fit and healthy as I want to be, but that will just benefit your mental strength. You know, I'm trying to listen to more podcasts and listen to more audiobooks than listen to Spotify, listen to music. So I think both have that have their advantages. That's a terrible answer to a quick fire <laughs> question. I do. do you learn by watching or doing? Doing, doing. I think most in our career probably of the same kind of level. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm I'm not one to learn from a book, but I am one to learn by being shown it and doing it myself. What's the best advice you have ever received? You're going to be all right. (laughs) Yeah, Um, yeah, through every difficulty through life, you're always going to be all right. You'll always come out the other end. It's never the end of the world. You're going to be all right. And I remember Chris Ray saying that to me back on the beach at at Harlan in Padstow. He said, you'll be all right. You'll you'll come good. And, you know, that was after the passing of my mum. What's the most valued trait and quality in people? Being there for somebody else. And what motivates you the most? To do the best I can in whatever circumstance. It comes down to that. I think I'd like to now take on board that quote from the High Performance Podcast of do the best you can where you are with what you have. Thank you. That's a really good note to end on. It's been great to chat to you, Gordon. We really appreciate you coming on the podcast, especially after a night shift. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me.